Hi, I'm Wanda Bryant-Hope, Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer at Johnson & Johnson. At Johnson & Johnson, diversity is about everyone's unique perspective, and inclusion is about creating a deep sense of belonging. Our vision is for every person to use their experiences and backgrounds together to spark solutions that create a better, healthier world. Learn more by visiting youbelong.jnj.com. She was like, you're under pressure. I said, yes. She said, you cannot sleep in the night. I said, yes. She said, you feel like you want to resign. I said, yes. She said, okay, that's normal. Cope with it. And eventually it will be over. So Do you feel like you've gotten through that part? Well, maybe 50% of it. <laughs> yeah. From Politico, this is Women Rule, where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. That's Her Excellency Lolwa Rashid Akhtar. She's a spokesperson for Qatar's Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the first woman to hold that position, which effectively makes her one of the most visible young female leaders in the Middle East and a living embodiment of the changing role of women in her country. And though she's in her 30s, Lolwa didn't start out working in politics. In fact, she went into the profession only after having the type of conversation with her parents that's familiar to a lot of us. It was a well-known trend in the Arab region that if you're excelling in your studies, you would end up as a doctor or as an engineer. So this is what my parents wanted for me, and I didn't want to disappoint them, so I ended up becoming an engineer. But after a while, I realized that this was not my thing. So the problem is I never talked to them about my own dreams. But then as soon as I told them that, they were like, you should have told us this long time ago. (laughs) We talked about what she's learned in her time on the global scene, from managing crises and in such a high-pressure job, to overcoming her fear of public speaking in a role that literally requires her to talk in front of people. I mean, the fear is still there as I'm speaking now, just before I came and entered, you know, your studio. So it's just a practice. I mean, each time I remind myself, you know, I've done it before so I can do it again. And now, here's my conversation with Lowa Rashid Al-Qatar. Thank you so much for joining us. I want to jump right into the situation in Qatar. This is a tense time in the Middle East. Yemen, Syria, the Iran nuclear deal, the blockade of your own country. It seems like all of this would make your job incredibly stressful. Tell me what a typical day like is for you. Are you mostly traveling? Are you on the road? Are you in your country? What, when kind of are, are you, is it internal? I mean, you're doing a lot of interviews and kind of being the face of, of Qatar as well. I mean, it's a little bit of everything. There is traveling. There is, of course, press briefings dealing with uh, or interacting with journalists, think tanks as well, public diplomacy in general, uh, our own internal briefings. Uh, Part of the difficulty that I faced when I started this job, the fact that I come from more of a research academic background. And it, I mean, we used or I used to take my time to uh, think through problems, issues, etc. Now I have to respond very quickly to to questions <laughs> and right. to all of these issues that as as they arise, basically. I want to ask you something pretty basic here. Some of our listeners, I'm sure, aren't as familiar with the Arab world or the Middle East. Can you walk us through what makes Qatar different than, say, Saudi Arabia? Well, uh, they're very different countries, though uh, they're uh, neighbors. I mean, both of them uh, are part of the GCC, that's the Gulf Cooperation Council. 
However, Qatar has been always known for its forward-looking vision in general. Uh, It's an open country, a small society. Uh, We're talking about uh, 300,000 in terms of the population. Mm -hmm. The overall population, when we calculate the nationals and the non-nationals, it's around 3 million. Qatar hosts uh, Al Jazeera, for example. Mm -hmm. So it has raised the bar when it comes to freedom of expression in the region. I mean, I know that uh, there is also this misconception about Qatar because oftentimes I get asked whether we can drive in Qatar. Women in Qatar have never been subjected to a drive uh, ban ever. So that's another fact. Uh, When it comes to education, for example, over 60% of our higher education graduates are women. Over 52% of our uh, labor market is is, is actually women. So uh, the position of Women, the the country overall is is a bit looks very different from many other countries in the Middle East. You've said before that Qatar has a moderate vision of the world and a moderate vision of ourselves, our roots, our Islam, and our Arabism. Describe that vision. What is Qatar hoping for? I mean, Qatar perceives itself as a country that is very proud of its heritage, Islamic and Arab heritage. Mm-hmm. And yet forward looking, very modern. We think that it's not a trade off to be a modern person in this day and time. And at the same time, to be very proud of your heritage. Just to give you an example, I mean, we host uh, what we call Education City in Qatar. That is a number of branch campuses, American branch campuses. Uh, Georgetown being one, since we're here in DC, <laughs> but then you have Texas A&M, you have uh, Carnegie Mellon, Cornell, etc. Alongside, I mean, we have the Faculty for Islamic Studies, which looks into Islamic heritage, but in a very forward-looking way. Mm-hmm. Talk about, you've talked a little bit about kind of the stats of women uh, in, in the country, but do you think this vision, does it give more power to women? Absolutely, by all means. I mean, this is a vision that was put forward by the father Emir, that is the father of the current Emir in 1995, and his wife, Her Highness Sheikha Moza as well. I mean, she is really our role model. And sometimes change is grassroots driven, but sometimes it's also top down. In the case of Qatar, I would say it's been top down. I mean, the very fact that we have equal opportunities to men when it comes to jobs, equal pay, by the way, uh, equal access to education. This is definitely a part of the vision that uh, the father Emir wanted for his own people. I want to take a step back. Where did you grow up? Well, in Doha, actually, <laughs> in Doha. In a city that is south to Doha, it's a coastal city. Uh, you're part of a generation of Qatari women who sort of came up of age during this time of reform when the rights of women were expanded talk about that. Were there ever, you know, oftentimes when there's change, there can be hiccups along the way. Of course, any change comes with its anxieties. Honestly, it's been wonderful for me personally, because when I grew up in the middle school, for example, I mean, I never imagined that I would end up going to the UK to study alone, basically, Mm -hmm. when I was 18 years old. This is also part of the change that happened and the society, the very fact that, I mean, I started, by the way, as an engineer mm-hmm. in the uh, oil and gas sector. And then I changed uh, my career to become more of a research academic career. And then eventually I ended up in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So the very fact that I can navigate my way based on my aspirations and, and dreams without any major obstacles, let's put it this way. Of course, you always have the social construct, glass ceiling, etc. But the policies in general are very empowering and enabling. Why do you think the Arab world has been slow overall to embrace equal opportunity for women? Well, part of it, I think it's 
just a global trend that the Arab world had to respond to. And also part of it is um, many pieces of research that were produced in the late 1990s saying that unless we catch up with the rest of the world, I mean, the Arab world would would be in a very different place, not a, a bright place in the future. So part of it is, is politicians responding to that. Part of it is also grassroots uh, driven. I mean, we also in the Arab region in general have many civil society institutions that have been driving change. You mentioned Saudi, for example, the very fact that women are allowed to drive. I right. think that this was mainly driven by that activism that many Saudi women started 20, 30 years ago. Are you surprised that the Arab Spring, when you think about that grassroots activism, wasn't accompanied by a broader sort of liberalization of the status of women in the Arab world? Absolutely. I mean, women and and those uprisings played a pivotal role. Just to give you an example, in Yemen, I mean, Yemen has been always perceived as that very conservative society where women don't have necessarily an active role in the public sphere. And yet, in the forefront, when the protests happened in Yemen, it was Yemeni women who were leading the protests to the extent that the uh, ousted president, to the extent that he delivered a speech in which he said, you women belong to, you know, your home, just go back home. So once again, I think that women in the Arab uprisings were able to kind of break the glass ceiling and break many preconceived stereotypes about Arab women in general. One thing that's interesting and you noted is kind of the shifts of trajectory in your career. You're in foreign policy now, but you started out in the world of science. What pushed you in that direction first? Well, I always loved humanities and social sciences in general. But then going back Mm -hmm. to social constructs, uh, I mean, it was a well-known trend in the Arab region that if you're excelling in your studies, you would end up as a doctor or as an engineer. Mm -hmm. So this is what my parents wanted for me, and I didn't want to disappoint them. So I ended up becoming an engineer. But after a while, I realized that this was not my thing. So when you realized you were going to shift into in, into something else, was was your family supportive of that or was it hard to get them to come along? Very much. The problem is I never talked to them about my own dreams. But then as soon as I told them that, they were like, you should have told us this long time ago. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, you're from Qatar, of course, but you went to school in the UK. Yes. Was that a difficult adjustment just in terms of I mean, coming from from where you come from and then being thrust into a totally different society with different norms and social constructs. It was not an easy change, I should say. Uh, by my very nature, I'm an extrovert, uh, an introvert, uh, pardon me. So it was not easy uh, for me in general. And of course, it's a different society, different context, language, culture, etc. But then one of the pluses, I think, of that experience is being exposed to diversity in general. This made me open up in, in general and accept many differences as part of the beauty of, of, of this life. So I wonder in this current role, given your background um, and doing different things, do you think that shift has helped you as you've kind of taken on this new, more public facing role? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the very fact that during that period, uh, I had to interact with people, different people, different situations, etc. This made me also understand the different perspectives. What's interesting about the current role is that many perceive it as a, a one-way communication in the sense that, you know, you have your lines, your talking points, and you just communicate them. To me, it's a bit different. To me, it's about 
reasoning and rationalizing things. I mean, if I'm not convinced of myself, how is it possible that I, I can convince others, right? And sometimes we need to kind of collectively think things out, mm -hmm. as uh, as they say. So I think this background of, of research academia, this uh, experience in, in the UK being exposed to different perspectives has helped me a lot. Do you ever go off your talking points? Do I? Yeah. The, <laughs> the talking points yeah, yeah. that, the, the, you know, that... The, the government may want you to be presenting? Well, that's, that's a very good question. I, before taking on this, this job, I asked myself the very difficult question. What if I end up in a situation where my personal belief goes against the talking point? What do I do? And I promised myself that I will not go against my own beliefs. And, and so far, I didn't have to do that, actually. Do you ever feel like the government and the male leaders are using the fact that you're a woman to put out a softer image to the world and show a different side of, of Qatar? The very first conversation that I ha had with my own minister was exactly that. It was very important for me that I was selected because of my qualities and not my gender to put that softer mm -hmm. image. So for me, this is very, very important that we as women collectively, I mean, we're educated, we're no less than our uh, you know, uh, colleagues uh, in the office. Mm -hmm. So if we're not qualified for the job as, as human beings, then we're not qualified. And if we are qualified, then we are qualified regardless. I read in an interview where you said you're still afraid to talk in front of people. The fear of public speaking is pretty common, but you are clearly in a role where you're literally <laughs> supposed to be talking uh, in front of people. How did you push through that fear? I mean, it's, the fear is still there as I'm speaking now, just before I came and entered, you know, your studio. So it's just a practice. I mean, each time I remind myself of, uh, you know, I've done it before so I can do it again. You know what? I think that this is helpful as well, because when you're too confident, I think there, there are many things that could fall in, in the middle, if you, if you see my point. Mm -hmm. But then if you're not so confident, you will make sure that, you study the topic that you're going to talk about, that you do your best to deliver the message. We'll be right back with more after this quick break. The Johnson & Johnson You Belong Diversity and Inclusion Impact Review explores how we are transforming our approach to diversity and inclusion to better understand the needs, desires, and values of the diverse communities we serve. Our impact review shares stories that demonstrate how our 135,000 employees are building and accelerating a culture of inclusion at Johnson & Johnson to better serve our patients, consumers, employees, and the world we care for. Our commitment to DNI runs deep. That's why we're consistently recognized as a top company for diversity and inclusion year after year. But don't take my word for it. See for yourself. Visit youbelong.jnj.com. What sparked your interest in going into politics? Honestly, politics chose me. I didn't choose politics. <laughs> I was, I've been always very critical of two things, if I may say. I mean, politics and media, interestingly <laughs> enough. So for me to be at the kind of uh, intersection of both uh, worlds, this is a very interesting experience. And honestly, oftentimes I find myself in a meeting room where I'm observing people and kind of recording things, because sometimes I feel like one day I'm going to look back at this experience and criticize it, maybe analyze it, maybe document it. I don't know. Yeah. 
What's the biggest learning curve that you've had? Honestly, every day in this job, every day is a new learning curve, I should say. But I think that it's just learning more things about myself, including the fact that I can do things without necessarily planning. So learning about myself as well as learning about other people, the world, politics, how it works. I became more appreciative of what many politicians um, and journalists and media anchors do. It's very, very easy, very easy to criticize from a distance. But once you're in their position, it becomes a very different case. And when you talk about things without necessarily having to bear the consequences, fair enough. I mean, you go back home and you sleep. And, but then if you have to bear the consequences, it becomes a very different formula for you. A lot of Qataris became more interested in politics with the crisis. Uh, for our listeners who aren't familiar with that, can you explain what it is and how it's affected your country? Thank you for asking this question. I mean, June 5th, 2017, we woke up in the morning to realize that our neighbors, uh, namely Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, have blockaded us completely. This meant that 90% of the food and medicine supplies did not enter the country. And that has put us as a, as a small nation in a very difficult, very difficult situation. And we are in general, wedged between some regional powers, Iran on the one hand, Saudi on the other hand, not necessarily all of them are behaving as, as rational actors uh, all the time. And, and for us as a small state, it's, it was very difficult to navigate through this blockade. However, we were able with the help of our allies and, and, and friendly nations such as the US and many other countries to kind of uh, defy some of the impact of that blockade. And if you allow me, I just want to elaborate a little bit about the humanitarian impact of, of that, because economically speaking, Qatar was able to diversify its supply chains and find new routes through international uh, borders. And, and we're good when it comes to the economy. Actually, we're, we're outperforming our neighbors who are blockading us. Our growth rate is, is actually higher than their growth rate, which is excellent. But then the humanitarian impact. Not many people realize that the social uh, fabric in the GCC is just one social fabric, the GCC being the Gulf Cooperation Council. Thousands of families are now separated because of that, unfortunately. So if they want to meet, they have to go to a third country to meet. And this, is, this has put us, all of us, not only Qatar, also Saudi families, Bahraini families, Emirati families in, in very difficult situations. Also, in addition to that, when it comes to religious rights, just to give you an example, I mean, as, as you know, Mecca and Medina, the religious, the, the holy cities for, for Muslims are based in, in, in Saudi. Mm -hmm. Qataris are not allowed to, to enter Saudi and hence to perform the religious rituals. That, that's another, that's another impact. Actually, one of our colleagues in the, in the office was, and his family were asked to, to leave. This is a very nice way to say that they were, I mean, Qataris were expelled, actually, mm -hmm. from, from uh, the holy cities. So that's another consequence of, of the blockade, in addition to some Qatari citizens who were eventually given access to Saudi, to the holy cities, but then they disappeared. The most recent incident is a father and a son, unfortunately. Do you have any hope that the blockade will, will end or that there could be any movement for kind of more unity in the region? Well, Kuwait is, has been trying to mediate. The U.S. as well has been backing up the Kuwaiti mediation. However, our neighbors have not been very responsive. As a matter of fact, they were given an invitation several times now 
to come to the U.S. and then possibly have a collective discussion and dialogue, but they reject it. Of course, we have to remain hopeful for the collective good of the region, collective security, and also for those separated families. I'm interested in your take on the real power of Iran, obviously a country that the U.S. is very focused on. Well, I mean, Iran is definitely one of the regional powers We in Qatar have our own disagreements with Iranian foreign policy, just to give you one example, uh, over Syria. I mean, Qatar is still one of the very few countries that is very vocal about the need to have a meaningful, meaningful solution in Syria, meaning that the regime that has slaughtered its own people should not be rewarded. So this is definitely one of the areas where we definitely disagree with Iran. Uh, that said, not many people realize that we have a shared uh, gas field with, with Iran. This is the reality of the geography. Right. 30% of the LNG liquefied natural gas production globally comes from that field, as a matter of fact. So interrupting this o- operation might actually affect the entire energy market globally. So that's why we think that our region cannot take another escalation, definitely not a military ex- escalation. And that's why we uh, actually second the call that was uh, uh, several times uh, repeated by the State Department uh, here in the U.S., Mm -hmm. that there needs to be some sort of dialogue at one point of time, and we support that dialogue. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Women Rule is produced by Zach Stanton. Special thanks to Dave Shaw for recording this episode. The show is made in partnership with our founding partners, Google and the Tory Burch Foundation. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. And please share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at apalmerdc. You can also join the Women Rule community by texting WOMEN to 66866. This year, Johnson & Johnson was inducted into the Diversity, Inc. Top Companies Hall of Fame. We were also ranked number one on the 2019 Working Mothers Best Companies list and have been recognized for 34 years in a row. That's what you might expect from a company whose workforce was more than 50% female when it was founded more than 130 years ago. Learn more at youbelong.jnj.com.